Hello, Erin. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Should We? A conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. Thank you so much for having me. My lovely co-host, Diana, is on uh, Should We PTO, I would say, <laughs> which means she's working very hard at her day job. But I'm so happy to have the chance to talk with you today. Aw, thank you. Maybe I'll do a little bit of introduction for our listeners. Erin McKean is the founder of Wordnik, also the author of the best-selling novel, The Secret Lives of Dresses, also the author of The Hundred Dresses, an illustrated nonfiction book, among other books. It's a long list, <laughs> a really important one. You're also the writer of the blog Address a Day. All true so far. Also the former editor-in-chief of American Dictionaries for Oxford University Press. Still true? Uh, yes. We have not yet changed the past. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wonderful. Um, well, I have so many questions for you today. They really span a lot of different topics, hopefully all close to your heart. The one I would like to start with is, should we wear dresses? Yes, 100%. Done. Like, well, actually, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. I mean, I love dresses, obviously. I haven't really worn non-dress, non-skirt garments other than for pranks or being on a trampoline in, like, five years. Wow. Wow. How did this come about, the consistent dress wearing? Well, it turns out if you write a blog called The Dress a Day and you show up somewhere wearing jeans, people get pissed. Really? They were like, we signed up for a dress-wearing person, by the way. I mean, that's only, like, moderately true. But I, I, I was doing so much, like, kind of dress advocacy. I was like, and people were always telling me, oh, I can't wear dresses because it's cold where I live. I can't wear dresses because I have a job where I have to be, like, on a stepladder. I can't wear dresses because, you know, I, I can't find dresses that fit me. And these are all reasonable things to say. Like, those are perfectly rational reasons not to wear a dress. And I was like, oh, well, could I really wear a dress every day? And it turns out that you can if certain things are in place. So and I what sew. are those things? <laughs> so I sew a lot. I just cleaned out my closet yesterday, and there are two dresses in my closet that I did not make. And wow. they're both, like, black knit dresses that I wear if I have to be on, like, a transatlantic flight. Because <laughs> I don't really like <laughs> sewing with knits, but at the same time on an airplane longer than 10 hours, I would like to be in pajamas. Right. So, and so when you make your own clothes, you can make them fit you. So I don't know what my size is in, like walk into a store and buy them clothes, I know what my size is in terms of my measurements and what I need to sew. And wow. also, I like to, like, walk around and have my stuff with me, like my phone and my notebook and my wallet. And, like, so I make all my dresses have pretty much ludicrously huge pockets. Like... My idol is Harpo Marx. Like, if I could have, like, a dress where I could take, like, a telephone and a live puppy out of my pockets, I would be very happy. That is fantastic. That makes it a lot easier to wear dresses. So, yes, if you can have dresses cheaply that fit you well, that have pockets for your stuff, that are fairly comfortable, 
then yes, you can wear a dress every day. <laughs> I never, like, sometimes people, if they've been longtime followers of my blog, when they meet me and they're wearing pants, sometimes they apologize. I'm like, you're comfortable, you're happy. Like, why would I, like, forcing people to wear a dress is just as bad as forcing people not to wear a dress. Right. Right? There's that great new book out called Trainwreck about how nobody can do public femininity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, deal with it. I'm going to wear a dress. And the dress might be camo. You have to deal with that, too. <laughs> um, and I've been working, like, in pretty male environments for a while, like software development. Right. And so it is a room full of guys in jeans and T-shirts that they got given by other software companies. Right, right. So this leads me to my next question, which is, should we be founders? Whoa, that's a hard question. <laughs> I... I feel like there's a lot of, like, founder mythology. Because in my opinion, you guys are founders because you have founded a podcast, right? Right. Like, you made something that didn't exist in the world before, and you are keeping it going. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think when people hear founder, they think, oh, well, should I go try and get VC money? Should I try to be a software startup? Should I, like, call myself a CEO and hang out in coffee shops all day? Now, (laughs) all of these things you're listing off, though, you've done them, haven't you? It took me several years to drink coffee after. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I didn't start drinking coffee until after I was 40. I was like, I don't like this stuff at all. This stuff is terrible. Wow, but now you drink it. Now I drink cold brew, which is like trading wheels coffee. Also fancy. (laughs) Yeah, and also cold. Like, I don't really like hot drinks either, so that was part of it. I think it's the same advice that I would give people who want to have a kid, right? Like, would you regret it for the rest of your life if you didn't have a child? Would it be a big emptiness in your life? Or would you be like, oh, no, I have my friends, I have my work, I have my family, I have travel. Like, I have a full life without a child. Or if you would wake up, you know, the night before your birthday every year and the December 31st every year, be like, oh, another year passed and I didn't create this thing that I want to see exist in the world. Like, I mean, you really can't necessarily live your life trying to stave off regrets, but if it occupies all your waking thoughts, like, oh, I want to do this thing, then I would say try it. And is that sort of how it was for you, this idea kind of weighing on you progressively over time? Like, sometimes I think the starting thing is the easy part. It's the keeping it going that's the hard part, mm-hmm. right? Like, I... I really feel like the kind of dictionary word Nick is, like, very inclusive. We list every word. We try to show you how words are used in context and show you a lot of data so you understand how words work and not just what they mean. It's a very different dictionary concept. Like, there aren't, as far as I know, any other dictionary that's as radically inclusive as Wordnik is. And so it's an idea that I want to have out there in the world. And even though we've been like up and live since 2009, people are not stealing this great idea that I wish they would steal. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you wish they would steal it? Because it'd be better for everybody. Like, I, I feel like it just makes me mad when people are curious about a word and a dictionary says that word's not worth your curiosity. Hmm. Like, that word's not ready yet. We still have to bake it instead of saying, like, here's everything we know about this word to date. You know, you're an educated person. You can look at the evidence and decide whether or not you want to use this word, understand what it means. Like, <laughs> so right. it's a very different philosophical idea. Mm-hmm. 
I had been talking about this, like, as an idea, but not thinking, like, I'm going to go start my own dictionary because who does that? Nobody does that. Literally, there has not been. <laughs> no one does. You're no the one only does. one. <laughs> like, well, okay. So, like, Noah Webster, right, was like, yeah, right. I'm going to make my own dictionary because we have American English now. <laughs> And, um, you know, and there have been some slang lexicographers who have been like, yeah, I'm going to collect all the slang words. And then, of course, the American Heritage Dictionary started because they were mad that Webster's Third New International put in some words that they didn't like. They tried to buy Merriam-Webster, and when their bid was turned down, they started their own dictionary. Because <gasps> they were scandal. mad. Yeah, and that was in the 60s. But it didn't seem like a reasonable thing. Mm-hmm. And then I met some people who are like, this should really be a company. Right. And I was like, you're very smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you've done at least two wonderful TED Talks oh. related to this topic. <laughs> Have you done more? Uh, yeah. The, it was actually the talk I gave at TED in 2007 that mm-hmm. introduced me to Roger McNamee, who's the wonderful person who said, this should be a company. And then I gave a talk at TED Youth, I guess in 2014, encouraging kids to make up words. Mm-hmm. I still get emails from students every month, sometimes every day, with a word that they've made up. Wow. It's really fun. That talk was so moving. I mean, it's so fun and funny and just a joy to watch and very brief. Everyone should watch it. Aww. But it's it's really relevant to my work because so often as a writer, I'm in conversations where someone will stop and look at me and say, is that a word? Did I... Should I just say something that's not a word? Can I say that? Yes. Can I get this right, you know? And I'm I'm so like, you can say whatever words you need to say <laughs> to express yourself. And it doesn't matter whether it's an official word or not. I'm not the judge of that. If it's a new word, great. We'll just give it to Aaron <laughs> to put in word neck. It'll be fine. So it was so nice to discover that talk and your whole philosophy that embraces creativity when it comes to language. The way I feel about it is that we have this natural backstop, right? If you're an English language speaker with, you know, near-native fluency, you don't even have to be a native English speaker, you've internalized so many rules about what makes a word that are just kind of natural to you at this point. Like, no one is going to say, oh, I just accidentally said this word that starts with four Ks, has two Js in the middle and an M. (gasps) (laughs) Is that a word? No, you know that's not a word. That's not what English words are shaped like. But I actually have like a Google alert set up for is not a word. And they're all perfectly reasonable words. Like, oh, somebody was talking about Trumpability. Oh, I know that's not a word. Of course it's a word. You can say that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I really wish people would stop asking, like, is this a word? And start asking, like, what is this word good for? Because right, you can make right. some terrible words that are really not good for anything, and they're still perfectly reasonable words. So in response to the question, <laughs> should we make up words, the answer yes, is definitely yes. Definitely yes. Also, another thing I really love about that talk is that you give a number of different methods for creating a new word. One of them is just steal a word from another language. Yes, it is really the easiest because 
I, I mean, if you think about it, if you steal a word from another language, you've already seen that that word is used by human beings and mm-hmm. that they like it. So all you have to do is just, you know, push it into English and that's fine. And nobody will ever mind. <laughs> the Germans don't keep like a strict tally saying, oh, you've already taken eight words this year. You can't have any more. <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of stealing, I actually first discovered your work when I was at the XOXO conference in Portland. Oh, I love that conference. Yes. And you gave a talk, which was really wonderful. I don't know if this was the whole topic, but at some point you said, you can weaponize nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's okay to be nice. And that was a revelation to me. I think I was in a moment where I was really feeling like in order to be uh, a mature professional, in order to become a leader or a manager even, I really needed to work on how nice I am. Like, this is kind of a problem. It's a liability. So my question to you is, should we be nice? And also, how do we weaponize it? <laughs> I, I sometimes think people confuse the word nice with the word doormat or the word pushover. Mm-hmm. Because I think that being polite and being kind and being empathetic are all tools as well as, you know, things that make you a relatively decent human being. One of my favorite terrible things to do is to be incredibly horribly nice to telemarketers. What? How? Why do you do it? So, okay, so you must, I get a lot of dumb phone calls, Mm -hmm. right? And I could swear at them and hang up and then, you know, raise my cortisol levels and raise their cortisol levels. But instead, if I say, so very sorry. I'm not interested. Could you please take me off your call list? Have a good day. Click. I don't get upset. And then there's nothing they can complain about, right? Because I was polite. I feel like people don't realize that politeness is literally an armor. People used to be polite to each other because everybody carried a knife, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if we're going to move to an armed society in America, which is what it looks like, you know, you don't want to elbow past people on the street without saying, excuse me, <laughs> you know, you say thank you and please to people. Also, I feel like if you're polite to people, it disarms a lot of their natural criticisms, which is, oh, she was so rude to me. Because people are always looking for excuses to call you a bitch if you have any kind of authority whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So you might as well disarm a few of those. And I think also if people are likely to underestimate you, then being nice gives you more like stealth air cover while you go and do whatever the (laughs) hell it was you wanted to do. If, you know, I'm not recommending that you gaslight people, but if there's someone especially terrible and you're nice to everyone and a total, like, bitch to them, no one's going to believe them when you say, oh, Erin was so mean to me. They're going to (laughs) be, Erin, she's so nice. (laughs) Not that I'm recommending that. Of course not. But just, you know, if you have to go to the nuclear option. I actually bought a a patch off of Etsy the other day that says world's nicest badass. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, yeah, you can be nice and you can be a badass. And I always think that people should start with nice because if you start with asshole, there's nowhere to go. Like, you can't start jerk and go nice because people don't believe it. But you could start nice and say, oh, you just lost your nice privileges. Now I'm going to be mean to you. Wow, wow. I never really thought of it that way. It's 
related to the dress thing, I think. Sort of owning the fact that I'm feminine or that I like dresses and owning my sort of quiet voice and my tendency to be polite has definitely been a process. And now I feel like I think of it as a strength or a special power that's my default setting. And I'm usually so consistent about it without trying that when I really need to shift that, when I need to pull out another tool, it's very effective. It's like the teacher who never has to raise her voice. You know, that's very powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm curious also about your trajectory as a founder. Going back to that story, you mentioned a little bit about how you got started as a founder, that you found other people who thought your idea should become real. What was What was the rest of the arc like? There have been some (laughs) twists and turns, I think. There's been an evolution of Wordnik, at least. Right. My current joke is that I'm doing Silicon Valley in reverse, and then I started (laughs) as a venture back startup, and now I'm a side project. Okay. (laughs) So, in a weird way, I feel really lucky about, because it turns out you might be really surprised by this, but even being the biggest dictionary in the world by a number of words covered does not generate a unicorn-style venture return. (laughs) Go figure. But I know. It's really surprising. When you just look at the number of English speakers in the world today. (laughs) But I had, you know, really great coworkers and really amazing investors who were like, but we love Wardnick and we want to keep it going. And so we tried with the company to do other things that were kind of like text-based text analytic-y. We made a really nice newsreader for a while that was like, looked at what topics you were interested in and gave you more news about it. That was really fun. Got a lot of downloads. But it just, nothing really gelled into a business. Mm-hmm. So one of the investors asked me, I'm like, well, what do you think should happen to Wernick? And I was like, well, I think it should be a nonprofit because I don't see it, you know, ever being a business business. And he was like, oh, okay. I was like, okay, well, who knows what's going to happen with that? And then about, I guess about a month later, he's like, yeah, we want to give you all of Wordnik's assets and you could go off and start it up as a nonprofit. Wow. Just like that. Just like that. Because, well, we were trying to also prep the rest of the company for sale and we're like, okay, well, we got to clean everything up, right? And people are going to ask, well, what's this giant dictionary you seem to run as a lark? (laughs) um, (laughs) So that's very interesting. So the company really expanded far beyond your original idea. Yeah. And now you're back with that kernel again. Yeah. I feel really lucky because so many things just get shut down. Yes. Right? You know, you fall in love with a product, like Reed Mill. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know this this feeling well. Uh, Yeah. And then, you know, they they have to merge or sell off or something. We have about 50,000 people that come to Wordnik every day to look things up. We have a small core of really active users. There's this lovely man who writes a limerick every day for our word of the day and posts it on the word. Wow. 
every day for years now. That's so wonderful. And we have 18,000 developers who use our API. That's a lot. It's a lot. None of them really pay us anything. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm kind of working on. Like, I think right now, thanks to some really generous donations, uh, especially of, like, in-kind server costs and a Kickstarter that we did last year, like, I'm able to keep the lights on. And I'm working towards rewriting the APIs and kind of making it self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. Right now, ads basically cover the servers. It means every day I get a question from somebody who wants to use WordNik better, and I can say, oh, that's a really good idea. I'll add it to the to-do list. Or, oh, we have actually an API call that does that right now. Students from Thailand writing me and making up English words. Wow. It's wow. really fun. So are you, in addition to being an author and lexicographer, are you also a developer yourself? Yes. Wow. How did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you hear these origin stories of software people, and they're like, oh, you know, I've been coding since I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm still wearing the same shirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Like, some people have come out flat out and said, like, oh, unless you were a geeky teenager, you're not going to be a good software founder. And I think that they're conflating, like, being able to be deeply interested in something with being deeply interested in computers. Because mm -hmm. everyone I know who does cool stuff is deeply interested in something. And a lot of them have transitioned that to being online. But... It's not that they were d deeply interested in computers, per se. They were deeply interested in that one thing. Mm -hmm. I actually went back and looked because I was like, when did I start? Like, I actually took AP computer science in high school. What? I did terribly on the AP exam. I took a computer science class in college, too, because it got me out of taking any real math. I did the same thing. <laughs> I did the same thing. Yeah. It was a great class. And then I worked for an educational textbook company. Like, I guess there are all these non-educational textbooks out there that I could be contrasting them with. But I, <laughs> I worked for a textbook company on their dictionaries. You know, if you work for a textbook company, all your coworkers are former teachers. That's how it works. But not a lot of them really felt comfortable with computers. And we use some weird software, so I had to do a bunch of networking stuff. So, like, I feel like every job I've always had to either do IT work or write little scripts mostly because I worked for places that either weren't comfortable with computers or didn't have enough money to hire a real developer. Mm -hmm. But then when I started WordNik, I knew that I wasn't competent to build the thing. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't even know, I didn't even know what I didn't know. But it turns out that if you sit in a room with between five and 30 kick-ass software engineers for several years, you tend to learn a lot. And you tend to learn, like, where the boundaries are of your knowledge so that you can go there and figure out what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when they handed WordNik, you know, when I was able to take WordNik back and start running it by myself as a nonprofit, there wasn't anybody else. I'm, like, full-stack engineer by default now, like, <laughs> you know. Um, Just faking it till you make it. Totally. But, like, when I first, like, my first job where I had to write, like, Perl scripts, I got two O'Reilly books, a CompuServe account, and a subscription to a print magazine about Perl because there was <laughs> no Stack Overflow. There were no wow. user groups. You know, I had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to learn what an array was. But what a great way to learn by just diving into the deep end, by just having to figure it out. 
Because you need to. Some people are deeply intrinsically motivated by computers and computing and software and development itself. It's endlessly fascinating to them. And some people are like, computers are the fastest, shiniest car to get me to the place I want to go to. And I am so definitely in the second camp. Mm-hmm. I, I actually added to my Twitter bio full Stack Overflow developer because I was like, <laughs> if I could see on Stack Overflow how to do this and use someone else's library and have the feature built that I want to build... I'm done for the day. Like, I love writing software. It feels so good. I would rather spend all day coding than just about any other work task I could imagine. I find it so engrossing and and really, like, joyful as an activity. But I don't really care what... Like, I, I'm writing mostly in JavaScript, mostly Node right now. And there are other languages I like a little bit better. But, like, Node is the fastest car to get me to where I want to go. <laughs> Well, this leads me to another question, um, which is, should we write books? It's interesting to hear the way you describe coding all day. And I'm very curious, after having written several different books in different styles, fiction, nonfiction, uh, how do you feel about writing books? Writing books is so much harder than writing code. It's so much harder. Like, like I can't unit test a chapter of a book and be like, oh, I know it works now, right? Yeah. Like, there's so much magic that happens between, like, the reader and the text that you have zero control over. And, and like, I can look at a I can look at, like, fiction or nonfiction that I've written and have no idea how good it is. Like, it could be terrible. It could be great. I have no way of telling, which is very nerve-wracking and, like, anxiety-making. And I wrote, like, a newspaper column every other week for a couple years. And it was just this, like, I had to write it on Sundays because I had a full-time job. And, like, Sunday morning was just, like, the most angst-ridden despair bearing hours of my life where I was like, what am I going to write about? Oh, this is terrible. What am I going to write about? This Uh, is the worst thing ever. I have so been there. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like so many writers start out doing their writing on the side, which means on the weekend. And that Sunday anxiety, oh, it's so painful. It's, it's, I mean, I would love to write more fiction, especially, but it's hard. It's yeah. so hard. So as you're following your curiosity um, as a developer, do you think you might create uh, something new beyond Wordnik? Or is your developer energy focused on continuing to develop WordNick? Well, I have no plans to stop working on it, although I am uh, going to be also working as a developer evangelist. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I start next week. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, what will you be evangelizing? There's an API framework for Node called Loopback. It's part of a company called StrongLoop that got purchased by IBM a year ago. So I'm going to go work for IBM and help people write APIs, wow. which I'm really excited about because since working on WordNix APIs, I've been talking about APIs all the time. And now I can talk to APIs to people who really want to hear about them instead of people who just suffer through it. Wow. So <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. On your new chapter. And yeah, so basically what they want me to do is write 
like tutorials about how to write APIs on working on open source code. And WordNick is also open source. Wow. So. What a beautiful new branch as you follow your curiosity. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about it. And it and it kind of extends the runway for WordNick a good bit because I don't have to pay myself because IBM will be doing that. Wonderful. I'm very grateful to them for doing so. <laughs> Thank you, IBM. <laughs> yeah. They've been really nice. So, I mean, I've been really liking them. Like, I mean, I haven't actually started yet. I start next week, but everybody's just been awesome. Oh, well, I really <laughs> so... wish you good luck. Thank you. And I think then the very last question we could end with is, should we follow our curiosity? Oh, yes. You know, but safely, you know. If you're going to follow your curiosity down a dark alley, make sure people know where you're going. Open manholes, probably not <laughs> something to be curious about. But I really think that in the Wikipedia era, where anything you could want to know about is two clicks away, like, why wouldn't you? Why? <laughs> so it was really fun. Could you have time for one dumb story? Like, one more story. So um, coming up here today, my husband drove up with me. We were going to have lunch in the city, wander around. He's going to run some errands. And so I was playing him like the songs that I liked off of my Spotify Discover Weekly playlist and then just looking up all the artists on Wikipedia because I'd never really heard of any of them. And it was just really cool. We're like, oh, this guy is from Chicago. Gosh, he lived like blocks away from us when we lived in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this artist worked with this other artist that I like. No wonder it got recommended into my playlist. And it was just like a really fun way to spend 20 minutes in the car, like just Googling all the artists in your Spotify playlist. It seems like good advice. Follow your curiosity, but let someone know <laughs> what rabbit hole you're going down. Yeah. And also, if you're really worried about rabbit holes, you can always set a timer. True. There's a limit to how much trouble you can get into in 20 minutes on the internet. That <laughs> so. is an excellent note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Now that we've come to the conclusion of our episode, we should definitely thank Yosh from Faultline Studios for our space and for helping us record. And Canada, the band who created our theme song, Hey Garland. We also want to thank Math Times Joy for being our wonderful design studio. And all of our Kickstarter backers for making this season possible. Thank you. Should you tune in next time? We'll let you decide. <laughs>